This week on Flyover from NPR News, how much would you pay to bring that shiny new factory to town? I'm Carrie Miller. Say Apple or Ford or Foxconn wanted to bring jobs to your region, but they needed a little help to seal the deal. How much help is too much? Big tax breaks? Do you want your politicians to go toe-to-toe with the state next door? What if it's not skilled factory jobs, but warehouse work like with Amazon? In the next hour, we're asking about the true cost of creating jobs in flyover country. Is it corporate welfare or smart investing for the future? If this has happened near you, I want to know how it worked out. Call us at 1-83-FLYOVER-1 to share your story. Flyover starts after this news. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota, a show about who we are in turbulent times. Each Sunday through the fall, we're holding American identity up to the light, and we're examining how it influences the way we see one another and how we approach the most pressing problems that confront the country. But the best part of this national call-in show is, of course, you, your personal experience and the way that shapes your view on big questions. Today, how much is the American job worth? Is it corporate welfare or astute investment to give millions in taxpayer dollars to lure a company like Amazon or Foxconn to town? Is it good business or is it propping up a myth about what America makes and who we are? And I'd like you to think about this. If this has happened in your town or city or state, where the tax breaks, the public funds, and the infrastructure spending were given to private companies to bring in jobs, is that a good deal for you? Is this the way to a stronger economy? Here's the phone number to join us, one eight three flyover one That's one 596 8371 Or talk to me about this on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M as in Minnesota PR, and use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Now, we're starting in Wisconsin, where Governor Scott Walker has just signed off on a deal with the Taiwanese electronics maker Foxconn. Wisconsin taxpayers will invest $3 billion in tax breaks and subsidies. What will they get back for that? We're turning to Sean Johnson. He's been covering the story for Wisconsin Public Radio. And I asked him why there's so much uncertainty about how many jobs will be created. You get the most optimistic numbers from the state. Uh, They're the ones that presented this deal. And when you hear the Walker administration talk about it, they don't really give a range. They give that high-end number. Where you got that 3,000 number, the first time we heard that was when the White House unveiled this uh, Foxconn proposal with Governor Walker, and they were talking about a range of 3,000 to 13,000 jobs. A lot of that's going to depend on how technology unfolds over the next decade or so and you know what kind of automation you're going to see at this new plant where we don't even know where it's going to be located exactly yet. So uh, there's a lot of question marks surrounding this, but 13,000 seems to be the high mark in terms of the number of jobs that Foxconn could create here. Sean, I I saw some calculations that put the state's investment at $230,000 per 
resident of Wisconsin for every job created. Now, is that at the 13,000 level of job creation or is that at the 3,000? And are those numbers right? That is at the 13,000 level of job creation. Wow. So the way that the incentive package is structured is Foxconn, as long as they build this massive plant that they're promising in southeast Wisconsin, they could get up to $1.35 billion in state tax credits just for that. So in theory, the plant could be empty. Of course, that's not what they're saying they're going to do, but that's just for building the plant there. They could get up to $1.35 billion. Additional tax incentives are based on their payroll. So as they add more jobs, they get more money from the state. If they hit that 13000 job marker, then you are talking in the range of $230,000 per job. Uh, so how else are they getting these incentives? Is some of it coming in cash, increment financing? How does it work? All the incentives we've talked about so far would be basically cash because in Wisconsin, government has basically zeroed out the tax burden for manufacturers already. So Foxconn could come here and because of uh, this new manufacturing tax credit that Republicans signed into law shortly after Governor Scott Walker became governor, manufacturers in Wisconsin now basically have no tax burden. And so what these incentives would do would be cutting a check to Foxconn um, because they don't owe any taxes already. That does not include additional tax incentives that would be offered to Foxconn by local governments, not paying property taxes to the degree that other businesses would be paying during this, uh, you know, this financing period. A lot of those details are still not out in the open because we don't know exactly where this is going to be built. You just mentioned this incentive package that the legislature passed when Scott Walker became governor. He's running for his third term, right? Running for reelection on his third term. It's all but official. I mean, he's raising money for it. He He's running. He just hasn't told us yet. So has that that incentive, basically zero tax package, been in place for quite a while in Wisconsin? And I ask because I see when you look at the numbers and what's happening with manufacturing, Wisconsin's been losing a lot of manufacturing jobs in spite of whatever whatever incentive this package is. The manufacturing tax credit that we're talking about here has been phased in and it's now fully operational. And it was at that point that it basically became fully operational that Wisconsin saw manufacturing job losses in 2016. So around 4,000 jobs lost in manufacturing. Now that's, that's part of a nationwide trend. I mean, there are other states that also lost manufacturing jobs, but it does go to show the limited power of a state to reverse international trends uh, even though the manufacturing tax burden is basically zero here, manufacturers still kind of by the very nature of the business, they find ways to automate. They find ways to right. become more efficient. That's how they make their money. When we look at the individual taxpayer investment and then we look at the amount of money Foxconn is going to reap if, you know, if they meet all the deals in this contract, we should note that that probably doesn't account for all the services and maybe the smaller companies that end up being spun off because Foxconn has located where they are in Wisconsin and they're building 
this big plan. I mean, is that something that we should consider when we look at what taxpayers are investing in a project like this? It's definitely something that the governor has said is the reason he wants the state or, you know, the state is moving forward with this because they want to create a tech corridor between Milwaukee and Chicago. The governor's referred to it as Wisconsin Valley. I don't know if that name's going to stick, but uh, <laughs> kind of a play on Wisconsin and Foxconn there. Uh. And there has been a lot of talk of when, when Foxconn locates like this, a lot of their suppliers will locate around them. And our legislature's budget office drew up a scenario that showed potentially you could have uh, 27,000 spinoff jobs from this Foxconn plant. But there's a lot of assumptions in that they're, to a large degree, taking their numbers from the state and kind of running the math with them. You're listening to Sean Johnson there from Wisconsin Public Radio talking to us today about the Foxconn deal that Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker struck with the electronics maker uh, Foxconn. We're having a conversation today about whether your state or city has leveraged millions of dollars in tax breaks and public funds to lure a company to town, and whether that's a good deal for you, or is it really more about economic nostalgia about who America is? And I want to hear from you on this. If this has happened in your town, your city or your state, where the tax breaks and the spending, and you heard in Wisconsin it's essentially cash, were given to private companies to bring in jobs, does that sound like a good deal for you? Is it corporate welfare? Is it just good, astute investment for jobs of the future? The phone number is one eight three flyover one You can talk to me about it on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. And let me take a call here from Dave in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for waiting. Hey. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Yeah, what are you thinking about this? Exactly this as consultants, both for communities and for companies. And I, I want to say that this is a very important tool to generate uh, economic opportunity in a community. Most folks, the general public, conceive this as giving companies uh, money. And it's not that. And it is different from state to state, from community to community. Uh, and from project to project, but in general terms, it is not paying taxes on the increased value of the property once you develop it. So your school district really loses no money, but then in turn, it has uh, the impact of having these jobs in the community, and those folks that are usually working at the new company are typically the people who are going to be the booster club members or or uh, volunteering in the community and doing things in, in other ways. And, more economic prosperity. and Dave, that is true. But you realize that when Wisconsin decides to give a mixture of cash and, you know, some kind of tax break to a company like Foxconn, the taxpayers are losing out on the taxes that Foxconn would pay. And that's our question here. Is, is that does that end up being a good deal to create those jobs? I think well, I hear it, you saying, it, yes, it's worth the investment. Yes, it is. Um, you just mentioned the, the spinoff uh, effect of suppliers locating around the new facility, depending upon what that particular company is and what it does. Uh, but you also have a new customer for the city utility department that's paying the water bill and sewer bill. You have a new customer for the utility or, or for the uh, electric utility. So all of these things start playing into a much bigger uh, connectivity of where that dollar goes. 
and we're just talking about uh, not paying a tax on the increased value of what often is uh, undeveloped land or land that is sitting idle that uh, in, in some cases of manufacturing needs to be redeveloped to, to use something uh, new for it. Okay. I appreciate your view on this, Dave. Thanks very much for calling in. It's flyover today, and we're having a conversation about public fund investment into private companies, like the deal that Wisconsin just struck with Foxconn. And I want to know as a taxpayer what your view is on that. On Twitter, a listener says, as a taxpayer, Foxconn is corporate welfare and the worst kind of government waste. Melanie says, it's a race to the bottom what is happening just like sports stadiums. So here's what I'd like you to think about as a as a member of the community and as a taxpayer who may benefit in a number of different ways from those jobs that get created. Is this how public funds ought to be invested? Is it a good deal for you? What about some of these manufacturing plants that are coming in? Does this really say more about economic nostalgia? that we make things in these communities, that that is somewhat of a dated view about who we are. I want to hear from you on this on Flyover, 1-833-FLYOVER-1, 1-833-596-8371. Talk to me about it on Twitter. It's at NPR. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join this conversation on Twitter. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio or share your experience on our live blog at flyoverradio.org. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota, a show about who we are in turbulent times. Today, what's the American job really worth? And how does this scramble for jobs reflect on where America's economy is really headed? I hope you're thinking about whether your city or state has shelled out millions to get or keep a manufacturing plant and whether that's a good bargain for you. Do we have an outdated idea of what America's economy should look like, and these companies in some way benefit. Take advantage of that. It's 183-FLYOVER1 on Twitter, at NPR. Use the hashtag FlyoverRadio. Our guest for the conversation, Matthew Mitchell, is director of the Project for the Study of American Capitalism at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's with us today from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Matthew, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. William Sandy Darity is with us. He's a professor of public policy at Duke University, and he's with us today from Durham, North Carolina. And Sandy, welcome. Good to have you on the show as well. Thank you for having me. Matthew, if you look back on some of the largest subsidy deals that states have offered up, I, I was surprised to learn that Foxconn at $3 billion isn't even the largest. I mean, Boeing got $8 billion from the state of Washington. Alcoa got more than $5 billion from the state of New York. What is the economic evidence? Tell us about whether this ends up being a good deal for taxpayers. Well, the evidence is actually pretty clear. Um, When you look at the 
uh, how the companies that receive these privileges fare. It's somewhat mixed. Some of them do better. Some of them do worse, uh, interestingly. A lot of them, you, you can't really pick it up. But when you look at uh, how the community at large does, which is, of course, the way that these deals are, are sold, you know, going back uh, to Alexander Hamilton, uh, who was probably the first to famously uh, say that we ought to be offering corporate subsidies, uh, poli- policymakers have long maintained that these deals are not just good for the companies themselves, but for the whole community. And when you look at the studies that have examined it in that light, there is basically no evidence that these deals um, provide any sort of widespread prosperity. And is the reason for that that states are competing with one another or the subsidies are just so large that they don't end up you know, having the kind of economic bang for the buck that we're told that they will? What is the reason? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, so one of them is an opportunity cost, which I think you were you were right to bring up earlier. So to take the Wisconsin Foxconn deal, um, $3 billion for one uh, company. And in this case, it is an outright subsidy because some of the, the uh, a large portion of it is a refundable corporate income tax credit or a refundable tax credit, I should say. Um, so $3 billion for one company. So in lieu of that, the state could have cut its corporate income tax rate that is paid by about 16,000 firms mm-hmm. by 21%. Wow. So that's an enormous opportunity cost. And those are 16,000 other firms that could have grown, could have um, added workforce, um, could have engaged in more economic activity. Uh, and so what you there, there's, there's this huge opportunity cost, uh, you know, what could have been done with the funds. Right. And so that's, that's, that's a, at least one major reason why these types of investments tend not to pay off. Sandy, this is going to sound like kind of an odd question when we're talking about numbers and economics here. But does it matter so much that the numbers might not add up, as we're hearing from Matthew? What if luring a big manufacturing plant to a state is good for the reputation of the state? It, it's good for the for the spirit of the state's citizens. I mean, is economics really the only standard that we should judge this by? Well, I think that the critical standard involves the quality of jobs that we want to provide uh, for all Americans. And I think that we particularly want jobs with dignity, that is, give people an opportunity to perform socially useful work, jobs with security, decent pay, regular pay, adequate benefits. Uh, But uh, I don't think that this approach uh, to trying to lure particular corporations into communities to generate jobs ensures that we'll get a sufficient number of jobs to meet the full demand of all of our American citizens for work opportunities, Mm -hmm. nor will it provide any assurance of quality work. Let me grab some calls here to Chris in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So, Chris, I know you've probably been following this story pretty closely. What do you think? Um, it's one of those things where I actually just listening to your show now kind of uh, realized that it was almost like a kind of a cash handout to Foxconn. And for the last couple of years, I know that there's been major cuts to academics with the UW system and things like that. And a lot of my friends are significantly in debt with you know, college and everything else like that, if it's a cash handout, why not, you know, help lay off the burden for those students paying that monthly payment back to pay off their student loans so that they can either innovate or so students coming into school cannot worry about 
that master debt coming out so they can focus on either technology jobs or anything else like that and really make sure that there is an economic future beyond manufacturing. All right. Good to have the call. Chris, I'm glad you were listening in Eau Claire to Dave in Mason City, Iowa. Dave, what do you think of this deal? What kinds of questions does it raise for you? Well, I think it's a good idea, and I, I kind of feel like you're misrepresenting uh, the argument. How so? Uh, when you give someone a tax break, you're not you're not uh, taking money away from the taxpayers. You're just not collecting money that that person would have given you otherwise. It's so it's it's not at a cost to the taxpayers, and the, the hope is that the, those folks will have a business that operates and starts to produce and put more back into the economy. Dave, I'm really glad you called because in the debates that I've covered in other state legislatures with other deals, that's an argument that proponents of this kind of financing and this kind of cash handout um, argue. Matthew, do the numbers add up the way Dave presents this? Um, So I think he raises a common point, but you have to look at what else could have been done with that money. And so that's where the 21% is valuable or is an important perspective. So Wisconsin's corporate income tax rate Um, which, as I said, applies to 16,000 firms in the state, um, is among the highest in the country. So absent this deal, they could have reduced that rate by 21% and put it closer to the average. And Sandy, when we talk about kind of the allure of a manufacturing, of a big company like Foxconn coming in and saying, we have the possibility to create 13,000 jobs with this, does that seem sexier to state legislators uh, than, uh, look, we're going to give everybody a a cut in their corporate taxes and we hope that as it ripples out, it's going to mean something to these 16,000 firms that Matthew's talking about. Is that part of what gets caught up in the argument here? Well, one of the things that I think was interesting about the earlier comment was that the expense of those 13,000 jobs per person would be in the vicinity of about $230,000. Um, Derek Hamilton at the New School and I have been arguing that we should introduce a strong alternative to this type of approach to generating employment. Uh, We should have a situation where we have jobs for all who desire it, and we've argued that we should have a federal government guarantee of employment for all American citizens. This would be considerably less expensive than the type of expenditure that's associated with the the Foxconn deal. In fact, we estimate that it would cost about $50,000 per worker to ensure that every American had the opportunity to have a job. So so I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, Sandy. You're saying you could take that money that in a deal like Foxconn or Amazon or Boeing or Alcoa or any of these other companies, you could take that money and use it for what you've just described as full employment for American right. workers. Right. We could we could achieve full employment directly and it would be far less expensive and far more efficient for the federal government to put people to work directly. Uh, Robert in Woodland Hills, California, called to say Foxconn is a great thing and it will be a great thing for Wisconsin. It will put in a great foundation for a new generation to get jobs. This is good. I wanted to talk about this and invest in schools. I don't see it happening in California, but I wish they would invest here. Matthew, to, the, to what Robert is saying here from California, that 
Uh, this lays a foundation. There will be spinoff companies. Maybe this is the kind of infusion into a community that makes a difference in public education. Is that a, is that a point to be considered? Um, I don't think it is because what this does is it lays a foundation on essentially a pile of sand. And what I mean is, uh, you know, Sandy, I think, rightly pointed out that a good job is a job with dignity. It's a job that has uh, – that's a sustainable job. And where does – where do you get a sustainable job? Where do you get a job that's going to last? Well, it, it needs to be built on a foundation of what consumers want. Now, if Foxconn would not have invested in that community but for the subsidy, then that is a strong indication that they should not be investing in that community, which is sort of a hard thing to tell policymakers because, you know, they're always touting the fact that the subsidy is what brought them in there. But if it's true that the company wouldn't locate there but for the subsidy, then that probably means it's not a sustainable business model. Hmm. Um, so to, to, to take an analogy – you know, with enough subsidies, Governor Walker could get uh, Dole to relocate a pineapple uh, uh, facility there. You know, you build a bunch of <laughs> bunch of greenhouses, right? Um, but that's probably not going to be a good investment for the people of Wisconsin because it's not going to e- exist once the subsidies go away. Although that is an extreme example, isn't it, Matthew? <laughs> well, well, it is. Well, go ahead, Sandy. A less extreme example, which is an addendum to Matthew's comment, is the uh, the observation that was made about uh, uh, municipal stadiums and the mobility and movement of professional sports franchises. For sure. So I think that's exactly an apt metaphor. Sandy Darity is with us on Flyover today. He's director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. And Matthew Mitchell is with us, director of the Project for the Study of American Capitalism at George Mason University. And he's with us today from Santa Fe, New Mexico. If you've just gotten in on the show, it's a conversation about what the American job is worth. Some of these deals that we're seeing around Boeing in the state of Washington, Foxconn in Wisconsin, Alcoa in New York, many, many other deals to give cash and tax subsidies and breaks to companies to get them to come into a community and create American jobs. We're looking at the economics of that. We're also looking at the bigger philosophical picture on whether chasing these jobs is an outdated way of invigorating the American economy. I'll ask Sandy and Matthew about that, but I want to hear from you on this as well. One eight three flyover one. That's one eight three three five nine six eight three seven one to the phones to Chris in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Chris. Hi. Hey there. Um, so there's lots of reasons to not like this particular, you know, uh, uh, deal from a value proposition, but I, I want to talk about the fairness issue. Okay. Whatever whatever city that uh, Foxconn builds in, you're going to have have uh, employers there that that have been good corporate citizens that have paid their property taxes, paid their employees, paid health insurance, yada yada yada, and they're going to be competing for the same labor dollar or the same same labor pool, same uh-huh. resources, same everything, with a company that's being heavily subsidized. W- why? And what the fairness factor of that. Sandy, weigh in on that, will you? Um, I think that the fairness factor is a strong point, and I would agree. You'd agree that it isn't fair for these, for the companies for that the, have already been there to try to compete. 
against this. For those companies that have made a commitment to staying and contributing to those communities, yeah, it's unfair to bring in a new company on a completely different set of terms. And Matthew, when you hear the argument about this, it's it's often scale. Well, look, I mean, Foxconn's got the capability to create 13,000 jobs, and who knows where it will go from there. Is that a fair point? No, I don't think it is. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, Chris is absolutely right to point uh, out the the just gross inequity of this. Um, so when you think about scale, first of all, it's it's important to, to point out that, uh, thankfully, uh, these types of subsidies are still a very, very small percentage of the economy. Um, so, you know, something on the order of less than 2%. Uh, so the vast majority of jobs that are created, the vast majority of jobs that are destroyed are outside of uh, any types of subsidies that are that are privileging particular firms or industries. Um, so when you really talk about scale, the scale of jobs being created are happening every day with sort of uh, run-of-the-mill mom-and-pop um, businesses that are starting up and are growing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's often said that it's small businesses are the source of job growth. The truth is that it's new businesses are the, are the uh, main source of job growth. And these subsidies tend to systematically favor, um, you, you said it appropriately earlier, uh, sexy industries. So they are manufacturers. They are, um, you know, uh, film production companies. They are not uh, the extremely valuable jobs like mechanics, um, you know, restaurants. Uh, there are plenty of other jobs that uh, are have dignity and have self-worth and have sustainability and that are important but just don't catch the eye of politicians because they're not quite so shiny. I think Dan in Las Vegas was thinking about this. He says uh, he called to say that he wants to point out that a lot of our labor problems are how jobs are viewed by the community at large. He says a lot of the places where work is needed, home health care, blue collar positions like electricians and plumbers, people think they're beneath them. And to the phones to Sark listening in Little Rock, Arkansas. Hi, thanks so much for waiting. What do you want to say about this? Thank you for taking my call. I wanted to ask the panel to address an issue very similar to the one Chris brought up earlier. Uh, And the example that I will give is of a steel plant in uh, northeastern Arkansas called Big River. And uh, it's got a multi-million dollar uh, government uh, state grant to, to open and it's in direct competition to a Nucor Yamato plant that was there earlier with mm-hmm. uh, uh, being a good corporate citizen. And uh, yeah, we get some subsidies from what I read for training purposes and stuff, but nothing like the, the big, huge millions of dollars that a new plant was brought in to directly compete with an existing uh, plant that was a citizen of the state. And did, and did Arkansas give a lot of money to that new steel manufacturer? To come in? Yes, huh. at least $10 million, Wow. Uh, okay. maybe more. Uh, but, uh, you know, it kind of makes me wonder how much of these are politically motivated. Sandy, how much is it politically motivated? Um, I, I would presume that virtually everything we do in this country is politically motivated in some <laughs> sense. So the question is, whose who's interest and... Uh, and the interest of particular corporations that are exercising a certain degree of power that others are not able to or that the local citizenry is not able to is a serious issue. Uh, Matthew, what would you say to Sark's question? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So in addition to you know firms 
getting being more likely to get the subsidies if they happen to make sexy uh, products. They're more likely to get the subsidy if they are flighty firms, um, which is actually the exact <laughs> wrong type of investment that you want to make. You know, flighty a meaning that is, they they could pick up and move. Exactly. If they are willing to come to you in order to get the subsidy, they're willing to leave you in order to get a better subsidy elsewhere. Um, so this is part of the reason why you see, you know, um, film production companies get subsidies. Uh, you don't see, you know, uh, fr- uh, you don't you don't see miners getting subsidies because you can't move a coal mine, right? Conversation on flyover today. If you've just tuned in about what the American job is worth. If if your company or your community, I should say, has shelled out a lot of money to a company to bring in jobs, is that a good deal for you? And do we have an outdated idea of what America's economy should look like? I'm going to talk about that on the other side of news. If you're a millennial, I'm going to hear what you think about manufacturing as the future. Call in 1-83-FLYOVER-1. If you've missed some of our program, you can find it on our website, flyoverradio.org. Next week, we'll talk about health care. Is it a right or a privilege? We'll talk with our partners at Iowa Public Radio, and we'll hear from you right here next week. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from Minnesota Public Radio News in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times. Today, what the American job is worth, what communities should be investing into private companies to bring those jobs, and whether this is a reflection of an outdated idea of where our economy is headed. Matthew Mitchell with us from George Mason University, joining us from Santa Fe, New Mexico today. Sandy Darity with us from Duke University. And right back to the phones here to Xander in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Xander. Thanks so much for waiting. Yeah. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I, I want, I'm really glad you called because it sounds like you're a millennial and I wanted to talk about how you see manufacturing as, as part of your future and the country's future. So what would you say? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't frankly know a lot of manufacturers. I actually grew up in Cleveland, uh, you know, steel and all that. So I, I uh, I'm aware of a history of factory workers, but frankly, I don't know anyone, certainly my age, that is, uh, you know, that's a manufacturing. Um, and I, I guess my point uh, really is, I think, in, you know, in a hundred, a hundred years ago, it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, we didn't have automation, at least the way we think of it now. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in 50, in, in 50 years, uh, will manufacturing even look like what we think of it historically? I mean, at this point, you can have somebody, uh, even a, a, a mason company could uh, hire a technician uh, and buy a couple of bricklaying robots at this point, which they do exist, I think. Sure, they're mm-hmm. prototypical at this point, but um, instead of hiring, you know, 30 uh, masons, bricklayers, you know, these are union jobs that... Uh, and these are certainly not the sexy ones your guests have, have talked about before. Uh, so it just worries me that, uh, you know, we're, we're reaching what seems to me like the tail end of manufacturing as we know it. And we're dumping literal billions uh, in, into, uh, into the hopes 
that they might bring back these jobs that we hope look the way they do. All right. It this just seems... This is really good. I want I want both Matthew and Sandy to weigh in on this. Matthew, would you grab that first? Yeah, I think Xander hit the nail on the head with that. You know, if you're a private entrepreneur and you are thinking about about a particular venture, then you are careful to weigh both the costs and the benefits. But if you are a policymaker who is essentially spending other people's money on and other people are going to reap the reward financially, you have no incentive to uh, pay attention to either costs or benefits. And so you're going to tend to use heuristics like, uh, well, you know, what did I grow up in? Uh, well, in the 1950s when um, uh, a plurality of Americans had a job in manufacturing. So you kind of are drawn to some of those artificial heuristics, but it's not really a, a good way to make an investment. Sandy, a little context here. Uh, Manufacturing in America hit a peak in 1979 with 19 million jobs. Right now it accounts for 12 million jobs. And a lot of that is thanks in part to productivity gains, right? I I know we hear a lot about the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs, but a lot of this is companies and plants getting more productive. Do those manufacturing jobs of today require something pretty different skill-wise than they did in 1979. Is that part of the issue? Uh, I don't think that that's the key dimension of the issue. I think that perhaps, if anything, uh, the key factor may be processes of automation reducing the, the need for the jobs that have traditionally been held in that area. But we put 154 million people to work, and uh, so manufacturing jobs are actually a diminishing share of the entire number of types of jobs that are uh, that are offered in our economy. Um, I think that what automation does is it tends to eliminate certain categories of jobs, but it does not necessarily eliminate needed work. Mm. And uh, one of the arenas in which we have strong needs for quality work is an arena that Matthew mentioned, which is uh, what I would like to call the care work sector. Okay. That is the provision of child care, the provision of elder care, uh, the provision of aids in classrooms for teachers. And I think we need to professionalize those jobs to make them uh, have a different kind of stature than they've traditionally had. And I think that's one of the reasons why... uh, why we've been advocating the formation of a federal job guarantee, because one of the key areas that the federal government could put people to work in and train them to, to do a quality job is, is in the care work arena. And Matthew, I think that's what one of our callers brought up again, too, is that these are where, I think from Nevada, these are the jobs that could use the boost and often don't get it in in the way that we see states use their tax increment financing and wealth cash like Foxconn's mm-hmm. getting. Why? Well, you know, I I think really who should th- those who should be in the driver's seat in determining what are the valuable jobs are consumers mm-hmm. um, because that's ultimately what's going to determine it. Uh, you know, you know, I know of a lot of small steel towns. Um, that in the you know the upper Midwest are sort of rusting uh, hulks of what they once were, and the problem is, and they have you know enormous social ills. There's high uh, rates of unemployment and underemployment, and opioid use and drug abuse, um, and these are communities 
where you know the the American consumers' tastes and technology evolved, but the community was sort of stuck in the old mode in part because incentives were telling it to be stuck in that old mode. So you know by the time you get the government incentives um, channeled in a certain direction, it's most likely going to be obsolete because the consumer and the technology has moved on. Mm. Uh, Mallory says, I'm 31, so I'm a little old for a millennial. I don't think manufacturing (laughs) is the savior that people think it is. How many of the jobs could be done by machines? It seems completely outdated and that they want to go back in time to Sarah in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Sarah, thanks for waiting. I know it's been a while. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to bring up a couple things. So um, me and my husband have been doing some research, and it is Reuters has said that this company made $146 billion in profit last year. Foxconn? If you go Mm -hmm. on in Foxconn, if you go on Indeed, the average assembly worker makes $9 an hour. If you want to give these subsidies to these companies, how about you you trickle that in to the community? If you get $200... Thirty thousand dollars per worker. Why aren't they seeing that? Um, I think nine dollars an hour is 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 the problem with some of these these communities getting these jobs. And people would say manufacturing's obsolete. It feels obsolete because who wants to work the jobs for that much money? And they see. Uh, Sarah, I think we lost your your line there, but I think we've got the essence of what you were going to say. Sandy, will you pick up on that, on that equation that she's talking about? Well, let me go back to the job guarantee proposal, because the premise behind that is that not only would we have a direct route to full employment, but with appropriate compensation, we could actually eliminate working poverty. And at the same time, we could set a floor on the compensation that would have to be offered to workers by the private sector Mm -hmm. because everybody would have the public option of choosing to work for uh, to work in 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 the the public sector jobs why uh, Sandy why don't states I mean is it because they're just so eager to have the deal why don't states put uh, agreements like that into these contracts as they're working them out uh, so you mean agreements for some kind of mem- minimum yes. standards of compensation? Right, as and um, also with what Sarah suggested. Well, I, I think they, they would, except for the fact that they are playing this game of trying to win the presence of these corporations. And so uh, I think there's a perception that if you make them charge higher wages, they'll be less likely to come to your community. Yeah, Matthew, is that it? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think I want to go back to the idea of what, uh, you know, a job is. Um, it is creating value, something of value for a consumer. Now, if you are not creating something of value for a consumer, um, yes, you might get a paycheck for a time, but it's not necessarily a sustainable paycheck. And so that's why it's, I think it, it's exceedingly important that firms are guided by the signals of prices, profit, and loss, and not by the, uh, ar- frankly, artificial signals of policymakers. Now, why are policymakers focused on this? Uh, I think you said it uh, exactly right. Uh, it's that if you cut uh, Wisconsin's corporate income tax rate by 21% and you, know, you generate a bunch of economic activity, you can't stand in front of a particular 
company and cut a ribbon. <laughs> but if you give one and only one company uh, a huge subsidy, you get to stand in front of that company and cut a big ribbon and take credit for all the jobs that uh, are, are there, whether they would have been created uh, with or without the subsidy. Bruce says on Twitter, as a Republican, I always ask about the total cost of begging. If it was a good investment, banks would do it first to Josh in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Josh, how does this work in your town? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, Really, we have 89 municipalities in this region here. Mm -hmm. And typically what you see is box stores pitting these different municipalities against each other for tax increment financing and so forth. Just a couple of years back, Boeing was going to build a new fighter jet. They called an emergency session at Jeff City Uh to just give them an exorbitant amount of money. But what I find that just speaks of hypocrisy were one state that did not expand Medicare. Mm -hmm. And I see that as being able to create a lot of good jobs at the same time helping the health of our citizens in the state. And uh, I'd like to hear uh, your guests comment on how how you really differentiate between those two. Sure. And when you say, Josh, that uh, Missouri didn't expand Medicaid, you mean under the Affordable Care Act? To cover yes. more people. Okay. Matthew, weigh in on, on what Josh is asking there, will you? Well, a couple of things there. You know, one thing is he's right to point out that these firms are spending a lot of time and money and effort courting the policymakers and trying to pit them against one another. Um, that in itself is a huge waste. Uh, you know, if a firm is donating, we economists have a technical term for it. We call it rent-seeking uh, and we find that rent-seeking societies are extraordinarily poor societies. Rent-seeking is expending scarce resources trying to win the favor or win a privilege from policymakers. Mm. Um, so that that's part of it. Um, but I think another th- aspect here uh, that might be, you know, I think really relevant for, in some ways, the whole goal of your show is that uh, I think we're missing an opportunity for left and right to come to some agreement here. How so? So Sandy and I may have... Uh, probably some different ideas, uh, you know, ideological views. I'm a generally free market, uh, you know, economist uh, who would prefer to see a much smaller government. You're a libertarian. Um, can we say that? Yeah, I, would, okay. I think that's yeah. a fair fair way to characterize it. Um, and Sandy, I, I, I gather, might be a progressive. Um, I don't want to speak for you, Sandy, but that's that's no. the feel I get. Uh, well, go yet, ahead. <laughs> you know, we're sort of agreeing here right. that, you know, we can debate about what's the proper size of government, but there's a long tradition and I think an absolutely right tradition in this country that says government ought not to discriminate. And that's really what we're talking about is whatever the size of the government is, it should be treating people equitably and we shouldn't have special one set of rules for uh, flashy companies or well-connected companies or um politically active donating companies and another set of rules for the pedestrian companies that aren't as flashy, aren't as politically active um, and just aren't winning the, the favors. But but Matthew, does your um, your willingness to work with somebody who's not politically on the line as you are go to believing in what will uh, what Sandy has said about federal money used to create these programs f- toward full employment? Do you agree with that idea? Well, I mean, I, I would need to study. I, I would confess ignorance. I don't know the details of Sandy's uh, proposal. Um, so that'd be the first thing is I, I would want to study it. But uh, I am 
generally skeptical of the idea of government-directed jobs because it, it, it does divorce people from the ultimate payer, which is either the taxpayer or the consumer. And okay. the consumer is, in my view, it's going to be a sustainable, valuable job if it is one that's created by consumers. Sandy? Uh, but if it is you know, just a make-work project, you, know, you could get 100% of the population employed tomorrow if we had 50% of the people dig holes in the, in the ground and the other 50% fill them in. But that wouldn't necessarily be the path to prosperity. We'd all wake up and we'd have nothing to show for it and we'd all have sore backs. Sandy? Uh, just a couple of comments. One is um, that uh, the consumer is not necessarily sovereign. Uh, I think what determines what we produce from the private sector is profitability. And I'm not convinced that producing another box of sugar-loaded cereal uh, that might be profitable for the firm in question is going to be socially useful. So I'd like to make a distinction between profitability and social value. Okay. Um, and then the second thing is that my perception of the worth of a federal jobs program is to create an avenue for people to perform the work that is not necessarily profitable to the private sector, but is potentially useful for the society as a whole. And this would involve both the physical and the human infrastructure. And I've talked about the human infrastructure already in terms of care work. Uh, so, uh, so I think Matthew and I do have a difference in point of view on this. Uh, let me grab a call here from a Matthew listening in Niles, Michigan. Hey, Matthew, thank you so much for waiting. What do you want to contribute here? Hey, I just want to mention um, about you mentioned earlier about millennials yeah. in the workforce and, and manufacturing. manufacturing. Yeah, I'm actually majoring in mechatronics, which is the emerging uh, mechanical and electrical systems. Interesting. And I wanted to mention a lot of these bread and butter manufacturing jobs; they're not coming back. And I feel like a lot of these people going into hoping they can grab a job in manufacturing, a lot of them aren't coming back. And me majoring in mechatronics is kind of a hedging my bets towards being valuable as an employee being able to work on the systems that are actually doing all the automation. And as far as, you know, government subsidized, subsidizing people trying to find jobs or be helpful in the marketplace, I don't know if they're actually realizing this to the full extent of how, how much automation is changing everything. But um, I feel like people doing their homework should realize that a lot of these aren't coming back, unfortunately, just because of the cost difference. And also from that, it's more when it becomes more profitable for a company to spend 10, 20 million on automation software and, and uh, infrastructure, that kind of makes it difficult for mid-level manufacturers to compete on this level unless they go overseas, unless they you know, downsize. And it, I think in the end of the day, it's going to be these larger companies taking over the marketplace entirely. Matthew, I think you're a really good voice to to uh, wrap the show on, and I'm really glad you called. You heard the show, and you called from uh, Michigan. Thank you. Good to have you on the show. Matthew Mitchell, thank you very much. Really appreciate the experience and the insight. Sandy Darity, thank you. Really good to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Matthew Mitchell is director of the Project for the Study of American Capitalism at George Mason University with us today from Santa Fe. And Sandy Darity is director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity 
at Duke University. Our producers are Markita Fornoff, Elizabeth Schockman, and Jeff Jones. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Joffrey Wilson composed our theme music. Next time on Flyover, we're talking about health care. Is it a right or a privilege? I have a feeling you have something to say about that. Tune in here next week. I'm Carrie Miller. Thank you for listening to Flyover from NPR News.